Okay, brand new week. Let's get going with Meredith Monday. And Chris, how's it going? Hey, Mike, it's going well. Good. Um, I am hoping I can get through a podcast with you today um, because... I have been. I think I sneezed about twenty times in a row, uh, about about half an hour ago. Uh, you probably sound, year I'm sounding a little bit nasal, but hey, this is uh, podcasting. Uh, this is extreme podcasting. Podcasting in all That's conditions. Right. You know, we're getting it done. It's not for the week. Not for the week. It's you got it show, <laughs> shows real commitment. Totally. <laughs> oh man, totally. And you've just done a podcast uh, with uh, your glory cloud guy, Todd. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. man. So you're on a marathon mission yourself. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, totally. Um, so we're going to talk about ancient Near East today, are we? Yes, we are. Cool. We've been we've been sort of threatening to do that for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm excited about this because it's probably the area I feel like I need the most knowledge. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, just knowing some some of what made Klein tick. Um, maybe a good thing to do would be start out just uh, talking. Or, or just uh, mentioning a few of his books. I know ancient Near Eastern treaties and the study thereof run right through all of his writings, really. But, but in terms of uh, the main ones, um, they would be by Earth Consigned, surely. That would be one, and Treaty of the Great King, that would be the other. Yes, although um, Treaty of the Great King ended up becoming the bulk of structure of biblical authority. Yeah, all right, cool. That makes sense. Because it's like you can't really get it anymore. I mean, they don't even publish it anymore, do they? No, you have to find it used. Yeah, okay. And I have, I think I have the PDF somewhere, and it always always uh, feels like it's the one that gets away. So what does he deal with? Because this whole thing with structure of biblical authority is to show how it was this canonical um, document that would have come forth you know, spontaneously, right? Rather than a, a evolution or a process going against all the source criticism of the day. Is that right? Right. And um, I know this bothered a lot of theonomists, which probably tickled Meredith, but um, hmm. his argument was that God um, sovereignly arranged the world in such a way that this treaty structure um, became the way of doing international diplomacy in the ancient Near East. Right. And so it was just natural then for God to use that in making his uh, covenants with his people. Yeah. Quite amazing, isn't it? Just to see the the parallels in the covenant renewal ceremony and just everything that that, that goes down there. Uh, it's, it's, it's just mind-blowing. It really is. Yeah. Now, maybe that leads to the first question that we need to... Uh, talk through or just people that are hearing this and hearing ancient Near East and this and that. I mean, like a bit, the big question I think behind, well, I suppose, what do we mean by ancient Near Eastern study? And then the, ne- the next thing would be, um, you know, like, why is it valuable? And I suppose we've kind of hit on that with uh, the Deuteronomy thing, but, but maybe just even before going there, I mean, what, what is the value of it? What is it? And what is the value? You want to take a swipe at that? Oh my goodness! Um, I should have done more preparation for this, but just off the cuff. I mean, off the cuff. We know you've got your doctorate, man. You don't have to prove you're clever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm about to prove. Uh, I'm afraid I'm about to prove how dumb I am. But um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the ancient Near East 
in terms of geography was basically what we would call the Middle East today to distinguish it from the Far East. So, yeah. you know, closer um, to the Western world than Asia. Um, but there's that fertile crescent in there right near what we would call today Saudi Arabia. Right. And, uh, and that's really where um, Israel, you know, would have gotten their start and um, where, where basically the stuff of the Old Testament would have taken place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, at, at some level, it's just basic to the context of the Old Testament, isn't it? Uh, it really, really is. If you're thinking ancient Near Eastern study, it's... Because I think, who was it? Um, uh, was it Dalich back in the day? Didn't he, like, elevate Babylonian studies over Israel. I remember reading something about that, and everyone kind of freaked out. I might not have read it in Klein, but, oh, you know what it might have been? John Walton, actually. I remember going through a lot of his stuff, and um, and this would have been a while ago, but I remember he was saying, like, ancient Near Eastern kind of study today is is regarded with um, a bit of suspicion, or at least it has been among amongst uh, Bible-believing Christians because of the liberal tendencies it's it's had. Um, and I think one of the big mess-ups had to do with Dalich's sort of um, uh, just just desire to want to show that Israel essentially evolved right out of Babylon rather than it being a separate entity, you know. Hmm. And he, he just, I think, really, you know, um, inflated Babylonian context to the point that it became the main thing. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm wary on the details there. But, um, you know, that sort of thing, and I suppose there are, you know, in just liberal scholarship in general, many, many ideas that float around saying, well, Israel is just, you know, one of those religions out there that just sort of formed its own identity through, you know, this and that uh, in the ancient Near East. And, and I suppose people, people hear that you're into ancient Near Eastern studies and they freak out because they think, well, we've got everything we need in the Bible. And, you know, what are you doing looking around the, uh, at the religions that essentially, you know, are rebuked by the prophets, (laughs) you know, all the time, mm. and um, and what, what do you want to learn from them? You know, what, this, these are the people that that Israel had to stay away from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do we think about that? I mean, I suppose the first the first answer would be, well, you've got to study things in their context. Um, any other thoughts come to mind? Well, I mean, we certainly don't want to go uh, off the rails and say that uh, Israel evolved out of um, you know one of these people groups from the ancient Near East, Mm -hmm. but um, they were part of this thing that we're calling the ancient Near East. They were um, a, one of the um, Semitic peoples. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just that God chose Abraham um, and said, you know, I'm going to make a great nation from you. And um, that's where Israel comes from. Now, I mean, as far as we can tell from the biblical text, there wasn't anything unique about Abraham, and he wasn't coming from a believing family. God mm-hmm. just said, you're going to leave your father and your mother, and you're going to go to the land that I show you. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, Israel really does have a unique um, beginning that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, any any situation historically, I mean, you know, even biblically, even in the New Testament, uh, we study the epistles, for example, or um, you know whatever it is. We 
this, I mean, even if there is some sort of theological distinction happening, or in, in Israel's case, though they become a theologically distinct people or Abrahamic covenant people, um, they, they are still at every other level people of their day and imbibing their culture. And, and so there is just this uh, wealth of insight that can be gleaned in terms of how they would tick and how they would understand God, right? I mean, that, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like even just, okay, and then maybe even getting to some of the more. I mean, I know Klein goes here, but like, and, and maybe even what we talked about um, the last time, you know, you've got the, the actual circumcision deal. Um, that wasn't something that God made up for the first time then, and people had never heard of it, right? Is that right? Uh, that's right. But I mean, it was what God chose to say, this is how I'm going to set you apart, even though it wasn't completely unheard of in the world at that time. It almost reminds me a little bit of of uh, the bread and wine, you know, that Jesus used for um, for the Lord's Supper. It's not like he takes mm. bread and wine as these like, wow, who knows what wine is? Now we know, you know, Jesus introduced <laughs> us to wine. You know, that's not what happened at all. I mean, wine was used for you know every conceivable purpose and you know amongst every people, and yet he sets it apart for his purposes. And from that point, it becomes the the Lord's Supper. It feels to me like it's helpful for us to know that at just at one basic level, like Jesus. Jesus didn't invent wine at that point, you know, and it, it starts verging into the ridiculous if we don't get our context at least at that level straight. Yes, and yeah. that reminds me of a, an argument that Klein would make just about language, okay, and that you know God didn't use some heavenly language um, right. that no one had ever heard of before to reveal Himself to people. He chose Hebrew, which, I mean was part of a group of Semitic languages yeah. it, it bears similarities to, you know, Aramaic and, and other ancient Near Eastern languages. Yeah. Um, he, he uses the, the real stuff of this world. He uses means yeah. basically. And, and that, I think people yeah. trip over, over means. Yes. Um, yes. They don't believe that, that that's like worthy of God or something. Totally. Yeah, and it's wrong. And people yeah. people need to get rid of that. And so if, if <laughs> look, if it's a little bit around the way, but if ancient Near Eastern study is what helps people, you know, get their um, minds around it, that on its own is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, you know, we've got those basics in play. I would just put that all in the bucket of, listen, the Bible's in a context. You know, God does use means. He uses humans, human authors, and all those things are super important. And uh, we almost end up in a kind of biblical deceticism if we don't get that right, uh, right. Where, where we think the Bible only seems to be, you know, uh, what it is, where, where it's actually this gold-plated, you know, leather-bound book that fell from heaven without any context. <laughs> almost like It's almost like, actually, now that I think about it, it's almost like we want to stay away from that Islamic deal with the Quran, you know. We or, just, or more. Mormonism, right? Mormonism. We're not either. Yeah. And those two are the same, in my, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Islam and Mormonism are like the same thing. Uh, you know, it's just in terms of the way they, they sort of approach the subject of Revelation and, you know, both been debunked historically and all sorts. But anyways, um, okay. So the other thing moving forward, I think, is just to think about the the way that it would have value, not only just in giving us context, but actually uh, yielding some insight into actual hermeneutical problems. Would that be fair enough? Yeah, uh, I think that is fair. Yeah. I mean, so can you think of hand some of the things that Klein has done that, that's really sort of, um, you know, shed some light uh, on passages that we really otherwise uh, maybe weren't mystified by, but just at least uh, have now got a better understanding of? Um, well, so Klein saw... Um, 
Well, and uh, he was getting this, I believe, from an uh, unbelieving scholar named Mendenhall. I could yes. be thinking of yes. the wrong one. Mendenhall, Mendenhall, who really did the um, the groundbreaking work of seeing a parallel between ancient Near Eastern treaties and uh, Deuteronomy. But um, it's probably Mendenhall that saw, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different um, sections to the treaty itself. And so Klein uh, looks at, at those um the characteristics of those sections of a treaty mm-hmm. and sees them reflected in different biblical covenants. And perhaps the the clearest one is in uh, the giving of the 10 commandments. So mm. in Exodus 20, mm. and he's able to identify like the preamble in verses one and two and the historical prologue at the end of verse two. And then uh, obviously the stipulations, uh, the rules or the laws are, are very clear in um, Exodus 20. Right. Um, so, you know, <laughs> running through those those different um, parts or sections of a of a covenant, uh, he found helpful for understanding what was going on in some of these. It wasn't just that God was dropping laws out of heaven; um, he was using this um, treaty structure to say more about those laws. So that's one thing. But then another thing is. Um, you know, I think what he does with the two tablets mm. of the law mm-hmm. that, you know, in, say, the Westminster Confession, it's treated as the first five commandments on one tablet and the last five on the second tablet. And Klein's saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on at all. Mm. It's two copies of the same Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one for God, which sits in the Ark of the Covenant, and the other for the people, Um to be read to them and, and, you know, to remind them and things like that, which was um, the practice in the ancient Near East, that when a treaty was made, mm-hmm. um, each party to the treaty got a copy of the, the covenant mm. so that they could remember what the terms of the covenant were. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful. And even just, uh, you know, speaking about all of that, I just, the thing that always... Um, I suppose at another quite basic level, I'm not sure how much of this was original decline or his his own research, but but just in general, I suppose the whole understanding of the the, the suzerain and vassal um, and the way that they function together and and just uh, getting that as a kind of background image to what's going on with with Yahweh and these people. I mean, you've got this uh, great king. And uh, those that he um, is taking under his care, those that he then gives responsibilities to. I love the way that Klein, uh, I think this was in, there must have been Kingdom Prologue, um, talks about, uh, just relates it all to this idea of, of the people that call upon the name. And how uh, right. you know, you called upon the name of the great king. Now, again, like we could, we could go. I mean, you could read all that, you could know that and get the basic sense of it anyway. So we're not talking necessarily, you know, Copernican revolution of, of thinking so much as it is just a, a very helpful and, I suppose, sturdy insight in that you are able to, um, you know, deepen your appreciation for what's happening in that, you know, if they, if they themselves as a people knew that they were calling upon their God as a vassal king calls upon the suzerain, um, and the suzerain 
you know, was to be, or at least God was to be their suzerain and, and no other. Um, I mean, that, that just, it's from a pastoral perspective, you know, and just from something that will preach well. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, that, yes. that's just filled with devotion. It's filled with, um, it just feels like you understand your relationship with God better from knowing that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, that's, what is that? I mean, it's, it's hermeneutics, but it's, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, it's just something that's 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 very. Um, I suppose it, it, the reason I say sturdy is because it keeps you from moving in directions that perhaps do get put out there that wouldn't at all sit right with that um, understanding of things, and, um, and and so you can just avoid those or just learn to stay away from those things. You know, when it, whenever you you know I think of unbridled dominionism, for example, that wants to bring. Uh, God down and and kind of lift man up and you know already you're seeing a, a blurring of this um, vassal suzerain understanding mm-hmm. um, and you know and again you know even with on the other side with fatalism and hyper Calvinism you know you don't have that being pictured there with an oriental sort of suzerain either um, you have more of a, a, a completely different you know, entity that that is totally sovereign over you. Um, so I don't know. I just see all sorts of helpful ways to kind of fill in the the biblical picture there. And and uh, again, for me, it just makes me feel not only like I know, I feel more in touch with what's going on, but I feel sturdy about it. In that, you know, you're not going to be able to move me off of that picture very easily. So that's good. You know, I don't know sure. if there's anything and, else. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about what it would have done for the assurance of Israel mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, to look at, let's just pick Babylon and say, okay, Babylon is a uh, suzerain in our world, and they have vassals that report up to them. And God is telling us that he's even more powerful and more able to save than Babylon. So if one of these little vassal countries can call on Babylon to come and protect them, how much more is God going to, um, you know, protect and uh, vindicate us? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's crazy. It's got so much, so much um, devotional worth <laughs> in mm-hmm. that sense. Well, you know what it is, actually, just hearing you talk like that. It's just what it's doing is it's making sure that we don't miss what we can already see in the text at some level. I mean, you could read through the Bible and know those same truths. But, mm-hmm. you know, you it, you know what it's like. You just sometimes miss over the thing that's important. And I think what this does is it just, you know, it makes sure to highlight that that this is what God is saying, you know, and He will come to our aid, and He is the greatest King, and He is over of, of all uh, earthly kings, and and it just it just adds this punch to it, I think. Um, so that's that's really helpful and good, and you know, this is one of the reasons I would always uh, just recommend people read Klein anyway, just just to um, if not someone else on any ancient Near Eastern scenario, uh, it just. It, it would give a lot of that sort of insight, and um, and it's fascinating if you hadn't heard any of that before. Um, maybe in terms of uh, some of the canonical issues that it speaks to, ancient Near Eastern studies, Klein really got on a, a thing about that, didn't he? I mean, he's just, uh, he saw something there. And um, and and wanted to bring that on structure of biblical authority. Uh, you yes. want to you want to have a go at trying to summarize what his burden was there in terms of just um, you know w- wanting to get that book out. <laughs> in, in very broad strokes, I can say that Klein saw a close connection between canon and covenant. Yeah. So that the documents, um, say even the tablets of the the Ten Commandments were the 
the canon that governed um, the the people. Yeah. Um, and that's why he he says um, something that sounds controversial to people, but when you understand how Klein is defining uh, the word canon, he's not using it um, in the way that I think most biblical scholars use the word. But he says that uh, the Old Testament is, um, I, I don't remember exactly how he words it, but yeah. essentially that it's the New Testament that is the canon for the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we uh, should throw the Old Testament away or that we can't learn anything from it. That was not his point. No. But just that the Old Testament text is not the canon that mm-hmm. governs the church. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, do, do you know what? Um, you know what I often think about. Do you know BB Warfields? Have you ever uh, read that article? That famous article he put out. I think it was uh, the Canon of the New Testament. It was probably called um, Canonicity yeah. of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, that although it's been. About? been about 20 years but yeah <laughs> yeah totally well one thing he um he said well, what i really loved about what he said and i almost saw it as the new testament uh counterpart for what klein was saying there in that um you have uh the apostles themselves just kind of um bringing that authority as you just mentioned you know for the for the new covenant church um being these uh these um uh, apostolic legates of Christ, I suppose, um, those who would uh, authoritatively um, uh, declare or endorse whatever is is being uh, said that they knew according to the, the, that which was, um, or oh, maybe their own inspiration was inspired. So what I'm thinking here is like, um, you know, the, the, he was trying to buckle this idea that you see the slow evolution of, of documents, but rather the, the early church immediately would have known whether the apostle endorsed it or not, you know. And so mm-hmm. as a result of that, you have this immediate resonance with the early church in that they understood it to be uh, authoritative precisely because the uh, the apostles were around at that time and um, would have would have spread word and endorsed uh, as, as that happened, whether they wrote it or whether someone else wrote it. It's almost like a, a similar idea in that the canon just comes into being for the church at that point. And it's not, you know, I see a, a big, uh, you know, I'd like to almost see those together with, with you know, attach that to, to structure of biblical authority. Have you ever thought about that? Mm. Um, it's reminding me of uh, Voss's analysis of the relationship right. between God's redemptive acts and God's redemptive words. Exactly. Yeah. And he pointed out, you know, that it, God would do redemptive acts in the Old Testament, and then He would give re, um, re, um, revelatory words to interpret those redemptive acts. Right. And that that pattern would go on. But he said, then you get to the pinnacle of of covenant history with the arrival of Christ, and suddenly there's a flurry. Of revelatory words, and then it's done. Yeah, amazing. Which matches right up with what you were just saying that yeah. um, the apostles were all basically still living when the church would have received these letters and so would have known, ah, this is authoritative and that's a fraud. Yeah, yeah, totally. I really loved that when I first, um, 
read through that. Um, I think I think people have, critis- uh, have launched valid critiques of Warfield's uh, article, but it's it's still one of the most helpful, basically most helpful, just on this idea that we're talking about now. Um, in that, it just buckles the trend. It just makes it very connected, as you say, to to redemptive revelation in history. And and uh, uh, for me, that's just a like a million times better than the usual canonical arguments. Uh, or yes. just the, the standard sort of, well, you know, the church kind of figured it out, or by the spirit that collectively knew, you know, at some point that this was, it just gets very nebulous and very weird. Um, and I think a lot of what, what I've seen uh, of a lot of those arguments, either the people are coming from a very, um, I don't know, perhaps just struggling with, in a liberal context, or they just aren't reformed, they have no concept of covenant. And so they're they're not even including these ideas of Klein and Warfield. Um, and then, you know, the guy who does do a great job of that is uh, Horton. I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Christian Faith, I and mean, we might have talked about this before, but mm-hmm. um, he weaves it all together really nicely. Um, and so if anyone is looking for a for a good um, book just on, on, on basically pulling all of this information um in a, in a, you know, pr- probably not in as much detail as you'd want if you were really looking at it. But in his um, book, The Christian Faith, he, he does a great job in just showing how canon comes into being and how it is connected to covenant. I've never seen anyone do it so lucidly. So, um, you know, that's a great book to just keep out there or put out for people to check out. Um, I second that. Yeah. Um, cool. So that's um, that's helpful on its own. I mean, are there any other big things to um, talk about with A&E stuff? Well, I would just point out that this also really served Klein's razor-sharp law gospel distinction. Ah, um, good point, yeah. Because he saw, and uh, I mean, he his covenant theology changed and uh, grew and developed over time, but he saw law as um, really the, the foundation of covenant yes. and uh, that gospel or grace uh covenants based on the the principle of grace um would have to be made in the context of um the violation of the stipulations section of this ancient Mm, near eastern format yeah totally that's great that's huge and there there is uh that's beyond hermeneutical insight that's just wow what is that like <laughs> theological insight that's 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 amazing yeah yeah oh man that's a good way to end out too um okay great so anyways there's a little bit of a snippet for um why we like the way klein delves into the a and e stuff um and so go and check that out um again this is meredith monday and you just basically want to be checking out meredith klein and meredith monday but a big part of what made klein klein was that he uh he 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 spent a lot of time in this and um and no doubt you start two pages into any one of his books you're going to find a lot of uh, of references that perhaps come across initially as a bit foreign uh well that's because they are foreign they're ancient near east um but you know they're good and uh that's some of the purpose behind it um so hopefully that's helpful to you and um thanks for joining us chris Thank you for having me, Mike. Appreciate it.